the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday. It's 4 o'clock. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. I'll do the best that I can to answer. All you need to do is to call us. You can dial... 210-340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just at the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and our studio producer will get you on the air. Hey, tonight it's Wednesday for us here at Calvary Chapel. That is our Old Testament Bible study night. Uh, we just started last week in the book of First Kings, so tonight I'm going to be doing just the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Uh, we say goodbye to David. Tonight he goes, uh, we would say, to be with Jesus. Of course, he went into uh, the place called Paradise or Abraham's bosom. Uh, But he leaves the earth in our Bible study tonight. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in while we uh, wait your phone calls. This is anonymous from our mobile app. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron, I need your wisdom. Uh Uh-oh, I don't like that. Uh, he or she says, how do I convey to pre-K-aged kids that the Lord wants to worship him in spirit and truth um, in the best way for them to understand? You know, Anonymous, I don't think there's a way to do that. I wouldn't. It's not something that I would worry about. I would talk to them about how much God loves them. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. And I think the worship, real worship, whether it's from a child or from an adult, comes from a heart that's grateful, a heart that's that's loved. And, and what I would do is share with your child uh, over and over continuously. I would share with them how much God loves them. Talk to them about Jesus. Now, Jesus will always be with you. Even when mom or dad is not there, Jesus will always be there. And and let the Holy Spirit sort of lead him or her uh, into a place where they're worshiping. So um, I just think that's too complex a concept to communicate to a pre-K age kid. I think in church they will get it. It will people it will demonstrate. Uh, people will demonstrate to them how to do it. But remember, all of our worship, regardless of how old we are, comes from. Grateful hearts for all that God has done. So rather than, than, than talk to them about how to worship or what it means to worship, I would just bathe them in the love of God. Don't make it difficult. Just bathe them in the love of God. I know you were looking for more than that, but I, I hope that helps. 
Here is a question from another anonymous from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor. Good day to you and Paula, and hope you're both doing well. I'm in an unequally yoked marriage, and admittedly, I'm struggling with loving my wife like Christ loves his church. I struggle with truly loving someone who does not love or regard my Lord Jesus as our Savior and as God the Son. This is not arrogance at all. I just don't feel close to her like I should. And I constantly think, why can't I have a wife who believes like I do? I'm going to come back to that part specifically in a moment. Read the rest of the question. Now, I was not saved when I got married. And I know that I am saved. I know I need to honor the marriage I'm in, but it's so hard. May I get some advice, please? Um, I, I want to be very kind. Uh, primarily, the way that you are going to win your wife's heart is by making her the object of your faith. See, this this whole question is um, focused on self. Um, This isn't a conversation, or question rather, that that deals with, um, uh, I love her and I want her in heaven. This is a question that's focused completely and only on your feelings. And we need to remember that the, the, the Savior that you found after you got married made you the object of his ministry, of his love. And he chased you down. And so this isn't a matter of this. This is Jesus sacrificed to demonstrate his love for you. Now you need to demonstrate that you will sacrifice to love this woman that you're married to. You said, constantly think about why can't I have a wife who believes like I do? And then earlier you said, I'm struggling with loving my wife the way Christ loves the church. Um, You really need to understand, you chose this girl. You're the one that changed, she didn't. Now, this is an object lesson. Again, I don't want to be unkind here. But unequally yoked marriages are the source of the most pain of anything that I have to deal with. I want you to put yourself in Paula's position for a moment. She prayed for me for 13 years. And, and, you know, I was a jerk. But she hung in there and she did it not for me. She did it for Jesus. He asked her, just like I'm going to ask you on his behalf now. He asked her, will you let me love Ron through you? And she didn't feel like it. She didn't want to do it. But she did it for him. And right now, your role is to represent him. So pray for her. I think there's, this is an appropriate time for repentance. But that I mean, you've got to say, Lord, forgive me that my eyes are on only me and not on you and not on her. Get to the place where you really want her in heaven more than anything else. Show her who Jesus is. How is she going to know Jesus is love if you won't love her? So now what you've got, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I knew who this was and I wish it was somebody in the military. I could say, you know what, when you get orders from the military, people just drop everything and go. Well, these are your orders from Jesus, to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Show her that there is a benefit for her to have a man who loves Jesus with all of his heart. Invite her every day to a time that she knows you're going to be sitting there with your Bible open, reading it. And invite her into it. Say, you know what, I'd love to read with you. I'd love to read to you. I would love to pray for you. I'd love to pray with you. And I know I can't make you do it, but I'm going to be here every day at these times. And it would thrill me if you would join me. And just leave it at that. And then let the Holy Spirit work. But when you're sort of withholding your love for her, because she doesn't make you feel loved, you're not showing her who Jesus is at all. 
He loved us when we were his enemy. We hated him, literally, and he wouldn't change his mind about loving us. And so this is what you do now. Is it going to be difficult? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of times that are difficult. But this is a decision that you have to make. Truly loving someone is not about emotions. There will be emotions. But truly loving someone is a decision. And you being obedient gives Jesus a chance to work through you to save her. And that's really, really what God wants you to do. So now that you're saved, act like it. This is a time for you to man up. Tonight, uh, Anonymous, I'm going to be studying, uh, I said a, a moment ago, First uh, Kings chapter 2, the first 12 verses where we say goodbye to David. You know what David's final advice for his son Solomon was? He said, show yourself a man. So you be a Jesus man. You be his arms and his feet. You love your wife even if you don't get love in return. And show her that the best thing she could do is to fall so in love with her Jesus husband. Show her. See what God does. Give God a chance to use you. Again, Paula was, she prayed for me for 13 years. And um, God had her keeping journals through all those years and reading those journals, which I've done from time to time, we've done together from time to time. Um, she's given me permission to talk about it. We've, I've talked about it several times over the years in messages that I've done. But I read those journals and I see the pain that I caused her. I see the humiliation. Paula stood with me when I lost everything that we had because of sin. She stood with me because Jesus asked her to. And I hope Paula would say that it was worth the sacrifices that she made. Is it hard? Yeah, it's going to be hard. But Jesus is there with you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And get your mind off yourself and start thinking about her. You want her in heaven because Jesus wants her in heaven. And let Jesus whisper to your, your heart, will you let me use you to love her into the family of God? I hope that's the case. Thank you very, very much for the, for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Mike. Uh, Mike says, "I still can't figure out why Jesus dying was necessary. Can you help me?" Yeah, Mike. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It's a simple. Um, you know, when when we have the the Jewish sacrificial system, they had to present their sacrifices, the lambs, without spot or blemish. In other words, they had to be perfect because they were a picture of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the true Lamb of God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that means there was somebody who had to live, a human, not, not, not God, not an angel. A human had to live without sin. And since that's impossible, God himself became that human. And so he lived a perfect sinless life, and he allowed himself to be crucified. Remember, he said he could call on 12 legions of angels. At an instant, I can almost see the angels at the ready. Instead, Mike, he endured the agony of the cross for the joy set before him. And you were, you were that joy. I was that joy. And so when he died, Second Corinthians 5.21 says... He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. But the sacrifice had to occur. And Jesus thought you were worth it. So he died. 
Jesus, the man, the perfect man, died. Now, Mike, for you and for me, the good news is he didn't stay dead. That's how we know all this makes sense. So Jesus had to die because the wrath of God against sin had to be satisfied. And that's why Jesus on that cross took the full wrath of God. My God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? He cried out. And he was truly forsaken. Because again, you were worth it because I was worth it. But until he died, giving, giving up his spirit, the sin price wasn't paid. When he cried out, it's finished. That's actually a business term in Greek, to telestai. And it means the debt is paid. So by dying with no sin, and by taking our sin upon him, the wrath of God for that sin, he relieved us from having to take the wrath of God that we deserve. So, Mike, I don't know why that's difficult, other than I think sometimes we think God could just overlook sin. Well, if he's going to forgive us, why doesn't he just forgive us? But the the holy justice and wrath of God had to be satisfied. And Jesus took it in our place. So I, I hope that's clear. Mike, this is a, an essential, of course, of our historic Christian faith. Uh, we have to understand that, that in order for sin to be forgiven, there had to be a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus was that sacrifice. Here is a question from Vince. He said, is there any way to tell whether or not a professing Christian has been filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, yeah, Vince, watch their life. Um, you know, most of the people in me that think of gifts of the Spirit, do they speak in tongues, those kinds of things. But but the way to tell whether or not a professing Christian has been filled with the Holy Spirit is simple. What does love coming from this person look like? Is he, is she loving? Are they kind? Are they gentle? Are they demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit? From Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, are they demonstrating that in their lives? And I think, you know, we're looking for power and signs and wonders, and I think the thing we all, we need to focus on is love. If love is coming from somebody who says they're a believer, then not only have they been given the Spirit of God without measure, but they've been baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Are they being obedient? Acts 5.32 says God gives the Holy Spirit in power to those who obey. So if if a Christian is living an obedient, God-honoring life, then yes, they've been filled with the Spirit because there's no other way for us to live a life that pleases God in our own strength apart from the Spirit of God. We can't even do that, Vince. So that's the way to tell. I don't know what would strike your concern about this person, but if you are looking at somebody and there's no fruit coming from their lives, um, if they talk like people in the world talk, if they get angry, if they live in fear, all of the, the, the normal unbeliever behaviors, then maybe they haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's easy to tell. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If those things characterize their life, then of course they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Repeat, because there's no other way for us to demonstrate that kind of love, that kind of fruit coming from our lives. So without more detail, Vince, that's the best I can do. I can say one thing for sure that people who are living in willful disobedience uh, are not filled with Holy Spirit. Um, Not knowing any specifics, you know, I'm not talking about whether or not they're saved, that's between them and the Lord. But to be filled with the Spirit means that we're going to be walking for Jesus, we're going to be walking with Jesus. That's one of the other things we're going to talk about in our study tonight. Um, What does it look like to be a man of God? You know, I was spending a little bit of time with the Lord this morning. 
And I was just thinking, what an honor and a privilege it is to be called to do what I do. I mean, I'm the least worthy person in the whole world to be called Pastor Ron, to to have people in this church that I love so much. And I've been able to share, Paul and I have been able to share in their lives. We see the work that God is doing in and through them. And we get to have a part of that. And I just thought, Lord, the only way I can say thank you is to be with you, to walk in the power of the Spirit for your glory. When you're with Jesus, Vince, I know I keep simplifying this, just be with Jesus. When you're with Jesus, then you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not whether or not they speak in tongues. Many, many, many don't. And I know some wonderfully spirit-filled, born-again Christians who are producing enormous fruit in their lives who don't have the gift of tongues. It's not about prophesying. We're not talking signs and wonders. We're talking about look at love. Is love coming from them? That's the best way to tell. So I hope that helps. Veronica, I was hoping to get through a program without a question on this today, but here goes. Veronica says, is there any connection between vaccine mandates and the end times? Um, Veronica, no. I, I, I really think we really need to understand that that um, we're not, we're in the very last days, but we're not in the Great Tribulation. There's no connection between this and the mark of the beast. I've been asked that question repeatedly on the show. I, I will say this. We know that in the end, there's going to be a great falling away, a great apostasy. And Jesus himself said that things are going to be so bad and there's going to be such supernatural power demonstrated by evil in the world that even the elect could be deceived. Even the elect. And I think maybe, and I'm speaking just, this is my opinion, I'm thinking behind the scenes the devil is wringing his hands like Snidely Whiplash. I had somebody tell me uh, just this week that that uh, they, they've always had a problem um, understanding how, how the, the, the world is going to explain away the rapture. And, and then this person said, now I know because I'm watching people being deceived. So is the devil behind this? I, of course he's behind everything. But this isn't something we have to worry about, taking the mark of the beast or anything else. I think this is an issue of control, and I don't think there are government officials sitting in a room with public health officials trying to decide, well, how can we control the general population? I don't think there's any of that. But the devil behind the scenes is sort of ramping things up, and I think a lot of what we see is being demonstrated uh, by evil power um, and and the idea of controlling the population uh, is certainly something that's appealing to the enemy. We know that the Antichrist, when he comes uh, during the Great Tribulation, that's going to be his agenda. So other than that, I don't think there's any connection. There's no grand conspiracy other than the conspiracy in the supernatural realm um, where Satan is behind the string or behind the scenes pulling strings. So, Veronica, you know what? I would like everybody to get past the place where they're worried about or talking about these things. Be obedient to what Jesus tells you to do and be okay with that. I'm tired of Christians looking at Christians who wear masks and saying, well, you don't have faith, you don't trust God. And and some Christians who are wearing masks looking at those who aren't wearing masks or those who aren't vaccinated and, and, and judging. You know, we're the problem here and we're spreading the disease and we don't care about people. Those are, those are, I mean, the enemy is in the middle of this and too many believers are falling right into his trap. So here's what we do. We all do what God tells us to do. Romans 14, 23, anything not of faith is sin. 
And then we give everybody else in the world the freedom to make the same choice we made. We don't ask anybody if they're masked or vaccinated. We don't worry about why some people are living one way and others are living another way. We simply do what God tells us to do. And then maybe we won't get caught up trying to control the lives of others. So, Veronica, thank you for the question. Give me an opportunity to share my heart. I got one minute. I don't think I have a one-minute question. I don't. So let me come back on the other side of the break for that. For now, just a quick reminder. Um, tonight at Calvary Chapel San Antonio, you can watch it at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. First Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We say goodbye to David, a man after God's own heart. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We will be back right after the break. 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Rich. Pastor Ron, should pastors like you... Name false teachers by name to warn the flock. Um, Rich, I think that's a personal decision that pastors need to make. Let me tell you what I've learned by experience. I have learned that when you name somebody by name, many people immediately stop listening. I've chosen, for the most part... Not 100%, but for the most part, to talk about the doctrine that the, the, the false teacher is proclaiming. And usually the people then can see that it's wrong, and then when they maybe tune into that false teacher again, they'll be able to identify, have a little bit of discernment. Uh, well, that's, the, that's, that's a false doctrine, and maybe they'll stop listening to the person. I think for shock value, a lot of pastors have when I was a young pastor. Um, I, I was never young, but I mean young in terms of years as a pastor. Uh, I fell in that trap. I felt, well, it's my responsibility to warn them, and I named names. And I found a lot of people didn't keep listening, and some didn't come back. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the the flock needs to be warned. But I trust the Holy Spirit with them as well. Having said that, Rich... I would not fault someone who names names uh, as long as they're naming them in love. You know, there's no um, um, cynicism or or biting humor involved. Uh, I, I would not have any problem with that if somebody else chose to do that. So, Rich, um, that's the best I can do. It's a personal decision. Uh, I did it at the beginning of my ministry. And I think for now, um, um, I've learned experientially that it's better not to name them. Uh, I've still done that very rarely. um, But... um, that's that's my my opinion. So, Rich, I hope that satisfies you. Danny wants to know, are there apostles in the church today? Uh, Danny, no, there are no apostles. The apostles, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, were the, given to the church as a gift, the foundation of the church. Now, we know there were 12 of them in the beginning. Um, that number was added to. Uh, by by uh, by some James, for instance, the Lord's brother became an apostle. Uh, Barnabas uh, became an apostle. So there were others that would be added to that list, but but it was a very small number. And these were men that were given great authority and great supernatural power by God, 
and the power was given them to validate not only their office, but the, the message that they proclaimed. So Ephesians 2.20 says they were the foundation of the church. Uh, the, the Greek language is very expressive, and it makes it clear. The foundation already laid. And by the way, Danny, prophets are added to that foundation. So the apostles and prophets are the foundation with Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. That's a foundation that's already been laid. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, we're told that no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid by Jesus himself. So there are no apostles in the church. Now, there are apostolic type or style ministries. You know, apostle, the word means simply a messenger. And um, there, there's a lot of people that, that, like Paul, would go out and establish churches. Uh, they'll go out and plant churches. Um, the, the supernatural power that the original apostles um, um, had or were given by God uh, is absent. Uh, but there's apostolic type ministries, but no apostles at all. Now, the problem with this, Danny, is that there are lots of people who claim to be apostles and who claim to be prophets. And going back to the last question with discernment, we need the discernment to say, well, that's not true. If you claim to be an apostle like the Apostle Paul or like the Apostle Peter or like any of the others, then you're not telling the truth. You're a false teacher, which means you're not an apostle for anybody but the devil. And so we need to understand that those people that stand up and say, I'm a prophet of God, thus saith the Lord, they are false teachers. So, uh, Danny, there are no apostles, there are no prophets in the church today, and um, people who claim otherwise are are false teachers, or they are misrepresenting what the Bible says, or they're simply ignorant of what the Bible says at all. So, no apostles in the church today, and the men that you see advertising themselves as apostles, Danny, they are not solid biblically or doctrinally, and you need to stay away from them. So if you're going to a church and somebody says, I'm an apostle, then you need to turn around and run. Good question. Celeste says, Pastor Ron, when you speak about not being angry, how do you reconcile that with the fact that Jesus was angry? It seems a lot. Um, Celeste, uh, I said this in a, in a message just recently. Um, we, we, we've got to be very careful and we've got to be humble before we start um, comparing our self-righteous anger to Jesus' righteous anger. Jesus was angry, but he was angry at religious hypocrites. Jesus was angry at sin and the devastating effect it had on the world that he created. Jesus was angry at the pain in the world. He was angry at the lack of love and compassion in the world. And he was angry. But remember again, it was righteous anger. When we get angry, it's not righteous at all. So what we've got to do is take Paul's advice. In our anger, do not sin. And every time that we sin in our anger, we've identified the source of our our, our anger as being self-righteous anger rather than righteous anger. So, Celeste, anger is one of those things that Paul says that we, we are to rid ourselves of. Jesus already gave us the power to take it away. He did that when he was crucified and risen from the dead. But at the same time, we've got to exercise getting rid of it. Anger is ugly. Anger is hurtful. Anger is almost never loving. And so what we can't do, Celeste, is rationalize that we have reasons to be angry. So yeah, Jesus was angry. But he was without sin. You and I are not. And so for us, the answer is not to give in to our angry anger and certainly not sin in our anger. And the moment we sin, then we point out our anger as being unrighteous. Hope that makes sense to you. Here's a question from Hope. I've been praying for our hope. Um, 
We got a lady named Hope in the church. Please pray for her. God knows the situation. Please pray for her. This is not from her. Jesus said we have the authority to forgive sins. How can humans forgive other people's sins? That's a good question, Hope. Um, um, we do not have the authority to, to confer forgiveness. Uh, I remember when, when 9-11 occurred, there was a big deal made on, on the talk shows. I think I, I saw the, the priest on Larry King uh, way back then. And um, um, he was granting absolution to all the people in the buildings as they were in danger of coming down and beginning to come down. He was running away, granting absolution. That is absolute nonsense. We have no power or authority to do that. So when he said that we have the authority to forgive sins, the authority comes from the message that he's given us to share with people. I can, And I do this every time I'm in the pulpit. If anybody gives their heart to Jesus, I, I'll, in fact, in the invitation, I'll say, I'd love to introduce you to my Jesus. He's here, and he wants to forgive you of your sins. But you see, I can do that based on the message I've been given. So anybody that says, Pastor Ron, will I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? I can say, your sins are forgiven. Not that I can forgive it, but Jesus already has, based on the authority of the Word of God. But when we humans try to say, well, I forgive sins, and this is one of the problems with confession and uh, church hierarchies, Laodice- uh, um, uh, the, the, my mind just went a blank, but when, when men elevate themselves, the Nicolaitans, what I'm trying to think about, um, Jesus said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, uh, when we, we establish a hierarchy between um, clergy and laity, um, that's, that's simply not something that God, Jesus said he hates that kind of a doctrine. So what we do is we tell people, you can be forgiven. Jesus forgives you. And we can confirm that forgiveness simply based on their confession of faith. Now, if they refuse to accept Jesus in their heart, likewise, we can say to them, your sins are not forgiven, and you will stand before God. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And Jesus Christ is Lord, and if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart, that will be the most terrifying moment of eternity for you. So we have the authority to confer forgiveness, but only God can forgive sins. And it's through the message, hope, that we can do that. Hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is a question from Bruce. Uh, Pastor Ron, are all sins the same or are there degrees of sins? Um, Bruce, um, let me make this clear. All sin separates us from God. The very first sin you ever were guilty of separated you from God. Unless something was done with that sin, you were not going to go to heaven. To go to heaven, you must be perfect. Only Jesus was, and that's why he gave us his perfection. But having said that all sins separate us from God, all sins certainly are not the same. Um, We know murder. Um, it's, It's final. And so when somebody murders somebody, that's a grievous sin. He who sheds the blood of man by man, his blood will be shed. That comes from God in the book of Genesis. We also know that sexual sins. Paul says when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body. All other sins are committed outside the body. But when a man sins sexually, he, and I would add she, sins against their own body. And in that particular sin, the consequences are more severe. It's as though we give Satan a highway to control our lives, to destroy us. And so there are, are greater consequences. Our justice systems, the justice systems in the world, they recognize uh, premeditated murder is worse than, than manslaughter. The result is somebody's dead in both cases, but they realize that there are degrees of sins. So uh, it's disingenuous when people will say, well, you Christians, you know, you're guilty of these sins and, and uh, you know, you don't give anybody else a break. No, there, there are degrees of sins to be sure. 
So, Bruce, um, Jesus told a parable where people who were guilty of much would be beaten with many blows in, in torment. There are others who would be beaten with few blows. So there's degrees of punishment in hell, just as there are going to be degrees of reward in heaven. Um, and, and the reason is because there are degrees of sins and consequences, attendant consequences to those sins. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you, Bruce. Charles asked, did the gifts like at Pentecost cease or are they still for today? Uh, the sign gifts, I'm sorry, it was misspelled. Uh, did the sign gifts like at Pentecost cease or are they still for today? Um, Charles, it depends what you mean. Gift, the gifts of the Spirit, there's, there's, there's no biblical warrant for saying the gifts of the Spirit ceased uh, at any particular place. Uh, we know the gifts of the Spirit won't be necessary in heaven. But until then, all of those gifts of the Spirit uh, are are, um, are are going to be in, in existence. Now, when you talk about sign gifts, those are a bit different in the sense that the, the sign is given by God to validate that the gift was from heaven. Um, Pentecost itself, you know, um, uh, people spoke in uh, tongues um, uh, that they didn't understand, that they didn't know before. Um, that was a sign gift. Pentecost, it will never be repeated. We also know there were cloven tongues of fire and the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Um, so that is a one-time only event. It was the Holy Spirit making his grand entrance into into our world. Um, but sign gifts have a purpose. And a sign, just like our signs, if we... Um, go to the, on the freeway, there's a sign that said, this road, next right. It's a sign to make sure you go to the right. Well, the sign gifts are signs that say, this is from Jesus. He loves you. He died for your sins. So sign gifts point to Jesus and ought to be accompanied by evangelism, ought to be accompanied by a heart for the lost. Those are the sign gifts. And those gifts only have value if they point to Jesus. So, Charles, I don't know what the genesis of your question is, but if if um, you're talking about everybody speaking tongues at one time, that should never be done again in, in, in church. Um, and the truth is that, that uh, we've learned to counterfeit gifts, and those gifts are being counterfeited uh, all over the world. Uh, we like goosebumps, I guess. We like excitement rather than just Jesus. So uh, when you see, if you were to see a sign gift, then Jesus is going to be hanging around right there, and you're going to have an opportunity to point somebody to Jesus. So that's the difference between the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, gifts to the church. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the, the, the gifts. I don't believe personally those are exhaustive lists of the gifts of the Spirit, but none of those could be classified as sign gifts. And the gift of tongues, Charles, as we know it today, is not a sign gift. It is a gift given to individual believers to strengthen their walk with Jesus, to enhance their relationship, their fellowship with Jesus. Um, but in their capacity as a sign gift, that's not true. Now, let me talk out of the other side of my mouth for just a moment. There are still places in the world where signs are needed. I've had two questions this week already about well, what about people in our Africa who don't hear or what about Muslim countries? Um, there are still a lot of sign gifts that, that can be demonstrated uh, in places like that. Uh, because people are taking a risk. They're risking their lives to convert from uh, the religion of the people that they live in to Christianity. And God gives them sign gifts. God will give men and women dreams and visions. Now, why doesn't he do it here? Because we don't need those signs. 
we got more evidence of Jesus' life, his death, his burial and resurrection than we need. We don't need somebody pointing to Jesus um, and, and using sign miracles to do it. But there are still parts of the world, there are still parts of the world where uh, signs are absolutely necessary and God uses them because God loves people. He wants them in heaven. So, Charles, I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the question. Vicky wants to know, since most of the information in the Gospels is the same, why are there four Gospels? Never been asked that question before. Uh, Vicky, good for you. Um, they're, they're, they're the three Gospels, called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there, there, there's a lot of the same information. There are duplicate stories and some. There are still some individual stories uh, that, that are germane only in that particular gospel. Um, but uh, for the most part, uh, they share a common theme. Uh, John's gospel written, um, I don't know, 40 years later um, or so, uh, John's gospel... Uh, is not one of the Synoptic Gospels, and John has a different emphasis. But, Vicki, the, mo- the reason that there are four Gospels, uh, primarily, primarily, is that there, the, each of those Gospels present a different perspective on Jesus. And when I say that, they're not changing any facts. They're just sh- demonstrating that Jesus has a different role in each of the Gospels. I'll give you the examples. In Matthew's Gospel, the most Jewish of all of the Gospel accounts, uh, Matthew's purpose, uh, a Jew, is to present Jesus as the Messiah, the, the, the one that had been prophesied about, the one everybody... one that everybody was waiting for. So he shows Jesus as the long-awaited Christ. The the emphasis in Matthew's gospel is um, that which fulfilled the scriptures or in order to fulfill this prophecy, um, demonstrating Jesus is, in fact, uh, the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. Um, Mark's gospel, uh, we're currently in the gospel of Mark on our Sunday morning studies. Um, In Mark's gospel, uh, Mark portrays Jesus as a servant of mankind. Uh, he didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. And so Mark demonstrates Jesus is the servant of man. Luke's gospel uh, demonstrates Jesus in his humanity. Um, the son of man is the, the most used title of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Um, and, and it demonstrates Jesus' humanity. And then we've got the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John clearly portrays Jesus in his deity. So we've got the Messiah, we've got the servant of man, we have um, Jesus the man, and in the Gospel of John, we've got Jesus who is also God. Over and over in the Gospel of John, he declares himself to be God clearly. I still get a little bit irritated by people saying, well, Jesus never said he was God. He said it so many times in the Gospel of John. All people have to do is read their Bibles and study. He didn't say, I am God, the way we want him to, but he said it over and over and over, and he said it in a very Jewish way, and, and they, they plotted his death, accusing him of blasphemy every time because he made himself equal with God. And then John's emphasis, of course, is on the miracles. So, Vicki, that's why there are four Gospels, and they just paint a complete picture of Jesus and what he came to this earth to do. Um, This will be the last question that we can take today, so no phone calls today. Uh, Oliver wants to know, why does Jesus call Peter the rock of the church if Peter was not the first pope? Oliver, let me assure you that Peter was not the first pope. The Roman Catholic Church didn't even come into existence until 313 A.D., the 4th century, and uh, and Peter was long gone by then. Um, When Jesus said, Peter, you're the rock, the word that he used for rock was a little pebble. The rock, the big stone, the massive stone, 
is the statement of faith that Jesus made, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was the huge rock upon which the church was founded. The church was never intended to be founded by Peter. Um, the, 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 the weight of that rock would have destroyed Peter. Uh, Peter would be embarrassed that some say he was the first pope uh, of the church, um, when in fact uh, it's his statement of faith that is this massive stone upon which the church will be built. That's really important for us to understand. We live in San Antonio, a very Catholic community, and there are people who cling to that facade that Peter was the first pope, when in fact we know that wasn't the case. So Jesus wasn't elevating Peter. Jesus wasn't putting Peter in charge. Um, Jesus was simply saying, Peter, that statement of faith, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is the, the foundation of the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. So, Oliver, I hope that answers your question. Peter was not the first pope. He could not have been the first pope. Uh, he didn't live that long. Well, we're about at the end of our program. Remember, tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we are going to be teaching 1 Kings chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Uh, you can join us for the study online at calvaryessay.com if you can't make it in person. Uh, we always have room on Wednesday nights. You'll meet some wonderful people. Uh, but if you can't get here, uh, go online and watch it. Uh, we say goodbye tonight to King David. Thank you for tuning in this week. We've still got our programs for the rest of the week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Until then, fall more in love with Jesus than ever before. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.